So we're on our walk yesterday, Sherry, and we come toward a big truck that's in a retail parking lot. It was a big Pabst Blue Ribbon truck, big liquor distributor. And we kind of come around the corner and we get past the truck. And right before we walk past this liquor store and it's out of sight, we see the stacks and stacks of cases of, of beverages that the the guys are bringing into the liquor store. Now, this is a small, it's kind of like a hole-in-the-wall liquor store. I don't think I ever went to this liquor store <laughs> when I... <laughs> He's shocked that there's a liquor store that I didn't find. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's not as bad as the hole-in-the-wall that's in walking distance from our house. Oh, I definitely went to. to that one. And that has a really great name that does not indicate... It, the prestigious name does not indicate the dump that it is. Yeah, I went to that but, dump yeah. lots of times. yeah. But no, uh, so liquor store I've never been to, believe it or not. Stacks and stacks of cases that have come out of this PBR truck. And what do we see? I mean, it was eye-catching enough that I stopped and took a picture. What did we see stacked up? Some white claw. Lots and lots of white claw. I would say 75% of the delivery that they had stacked out on pallets outside the liquor store Getting ready to go in was white claw. You're making a face. You don't think it was 75%? Well, I, when you were standing there taking a picture, I was kind of hiding behind the other section. Because you were embarrassed because the guys were out there. Yes, yes. The guys were out there. But um, I looked there at the was picture. A lot of, I did a good weird. job of not getting their faces. Yeah. There was a lot of uh, Coors Light, though, which I thought was weird. Too. Okay, fine. There was some Coors Light, but the majority was white claw. Yeah. Is that fair? The ma- yeah, I guess the majority was. Okay. Like so the reason I bring that up is I just think it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious now, now that I don't drink anymore. But, you know, I have I have a, I, I have an acquaintance who is an alcohol distributor. And she was telling me a, a couple of weeks back that the White Claw sales have gone through the roof during the pandemic because people think it's healthy. And if they're going to start drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning... They, and drink all day long. They want to drink something healthy. So, like, what wine is, and beer sales have gone down because that is associated with being fattening. But White Claw, for those who don't know, is a hard seltzer. It's one of, you know, oh, Budweiser's yeah. got their hard seltzer now. And, I mean, it cracks me up. Anheuser-Busch actually so uses like natural light to advertise their hard seltzer. You know, it probably is. I hadn't thought about that. But I mean... I think Zima was a malt liquor. I don't know Oh, that's right, yeah. But, so... It's it's low calorie, I guess. So people think, well, it's a pandemic. I've got to drink all day. Quarantine, yeah. Quarantine fifteen. I got to yeah. drink my hard if, seltzer. If I'm gonna drink all day, I better and, make it low know, cal. Because yeah, then low, it's fine. Low calorie, and it's probably not as. It's not like you're just drinking straight vodka on ice. So it's, it's probably not. Well, they got to make it last all yeah, day. Yeah, got to so. last all day. Yeah, it's like a. Session beer. But so she had told me that, <laughs> right, she had told me that, but then to see it in living color, see these stacks making up the majority of this delivery from this big distributor to the liquor store was hilarious. And it actually reminded me <coughs> of chapter one of our book, our new book that's available for pre-order. And by the way, I just found out this week, the hardcover is available for pre-order too. I did not expect that. I thought we were only releasing the ebook pre-order. But 
So yes, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage is available. Section one of the three sections, section two is about my recovery, section three is about recovering our marriage, but section one is about my alcoholic buffoonery. And there's a lot of stuff in there that explains how I justified my drinking, all the rules around my drinking and things like that. And I definitely would have been considering at least the whole White Claw thing in quarantine. What a fascinating name, too. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Yeah. I know that high schoolers love it too, which is sad. But I know it's the drink the of choice for high schoolers. <laughs> I guess so. But yeah, White Claw makes me think of the the way you guys did your uh, bangs your bangs back in the eighties. <laughs> the White Girl Claw that thing. I didn't have got the curled hair under or for curled that over as much, but yes, yeah, mine was a little tamer. Mine were not. Claws or talents. I was very attracted to the white claw yeah. back in eighth grade or yeah. high school. But so you would have considered white claw back in your. I think so. Days I think it would have been like I, a hard. I think it would have been a little bit femmy for me. So I probably would have had the natural light ver. Natural life light is getting national television, you know, advertising <laughs> spend on it because they've got their their version of the hard Natty seltzer. Light. Natty Light. Like <laughs> the bottom of the barrel, the cheapest stuff that we used to buy in uh, college. Meister Brow's pretty darn bad, but we shouldn't bash names. Then. Yeah. Yeah, we should. But. Yeah. You would have had the Natural Light men's version of White Claw I guess hard so. seltzer. I guess so. But it just, you know, it makes me think of that whole first section of the book is all about my buffoonery, how, how I became an alcoholic. It turns out, I've done a lot of research on this, Sherry. Mm. It turns out it's it's not my lack of willpower. It's not my depravity or my overall weakness as a human. Do you know what made me an alcoholic? The alcohol. It was the alcohol. It's crazy. And, you know, I com- I've compared that recently to, you know, lung cancer, which lung cancer rates have declined significantly in the last 50 years. I mean, it's it's been a huge public health benefit, a huge miracle in public health. And do you know why lung cancer rates have decreased so much? Do you know what the leading cause of lung cancer is? Cigarettes. It's cigarettes. It's crazy. Well, I wonder how much pot's going to play into that. I don't know. But you know what I do know? Yeah. Nowadays, another epidemic besides alcoholism that we're dealing with is obesity and diabetes, type 2 diabetes. They, I mean, through the roof in the last 20, 30 years. And when you look at the statistics and you look at the leading causes, do you know what's causing the diabetes and... and uh, Brood. Sugar. Sugar! It turns out... It turns out that when we have these chronic diseases that are huge epidemics and are killing millions of people, we can figure out what the cause is. I'm kind of worked up today. Can you yeah, tell? I can tell. Okay. Did you have caffeine? No. Okay. So sugar causes obesity and diabetes. Cigarettes <laughs> cause lung cancer. Alcohol causes alcoholism. I mean, alcoholism has been around forever, and I feel... Yeah. I'm really proud of myself for having finally discovered the cause of alcoholism. It's it's not just that some people aren't aren't good at saying no to that third drink like other people are. That's not it. It's actually the alcohol. Crazy. So, um, I think the point I'm trying to make is, when we are in it... When we are drinking and it, the alcohol is controlling our lives, or even for moderate drinkers, and alcohol doesn't control our lives. When we're in it and it's a big part of what we do, 
we are blind. We are just completely unable to see the truth. How many people have the experience of going to the doctor and whatever it is that's wrong with them, they do check the box on the form they fill in, the intake form, that yes, I drink daily or whatever. And you know they, they check that box because they hope the doctor brings it up because you know it's kind of a problem and it's probably causing me whatever whatever I'm in here at the doctor to to deal with. But the doctor never brings it up. I mean, I hear story after story after story of people who say, yeah, they check the box and they they might not be honest about their intake, but they reveal enough alcohol intake that it should send off alarm bells. But you know why? I mean, this is my opinion. I think the reason that the doctors don't drill down on that often is because they know they're going home at night and having four scotches when the, when their hospital shift is over or their doctor's office shift is over. You're making a puke face on scotch. It's not your favorite. Yeah, it's pretty good on gross. But, yeah, they're probably, and maybe dealing with their own. Or they haven't been trained really how to start the conversation. I mean... Perhaps. There's a lot, I mean, we know of people that... There's education that's a problem, for sure. we know of people that have severe weight issues, that their doctors skirt around the weight issues with them or other, you know... I just think, but I think it's so often that, you know, it, it, the same thing happens in the high school where I work. You know, I've pushed for alcohol education stuff, you know, not necessarily classes or seminars, whatever. Just let's work together on alcohol education for these high school students. But I get pushback more so than when we talk about education for other drugs. And the reason I get pushback is because they know all the parents are home having their daily cocktails and the administration too. And they, the last thing that they want is for us to be vilifying something that's a part of their daily life. Well, because it's become so acceptable absolutely, to drink and go to happy hours and have wine. We've made it seem like it's a health benefit. Absolutely. You know, so when we're in it, we're unable to see the truth when we're in it to a addictive alcoholic, you know, painful, awful, ruining our life state, or when we're in it because we have a couple of drinks every day and we think that's fine. The truth is, it's just, it's not visible to us. And that stack of white claw that we walked by is just living proof of it. I've decided that drinking from 10 a.m. till I go to bed is fine. And I found a solution for not gaining a lot of weight in doing so. And so there's nothing to talk about. All is good. I was asked this week, Sherry, if it is possible for an active alcoholic to tell the truth. I was asked that by someone who's really struggling. Her her husband is, he's trying to get sober, but he's actually, frankly, not making much progress. And when he's sober, he lies to her about whether he drank or not. Um, when he's drinking, he's definitely lying to her. But I was asked, is it possible to tell the truth? And it made me kind of sit back and think about when when I was drinking, when alcohol was part of my life. I'm not just talking about specifically when I was drunk or in the you know, process of getting drunk, but even at my sober times between drinking sessions, I had this perception that I now know to be so false, but when I was in it, I believed it. I, you know, I would... I would come up with these epiphanies, these, oh, this will solve my 
my drinking problem. Here's a new rule. I'm going to drink a glass of water between each drink and everything is going to be fine from now on. Epiphanies like that or or we had a social event coming up and I wanted to reassure you that I wasn't going to overdo it. I had all this stuff that I always wanted to tell you. And so I would text you or I would call you or I would find you and track you down and grab you by the shoulders and make you listen to me and, you know, pester you. And I really thought, this is what's funny about it. I really thought that I was kind of driving the boat and that whatever I shared with you, you were going to absorb and believe and it was going to, it was going to bring peace to your mind. But the, the longer that this process took, the longer I was an alcoholic, the longer I drank abusively, the longer I lied to you. And by lying to you, I mean I would set out with the best of intentions. I'm, I'm only going to drink three beers at this thing we're going to, Sherry. Don't worry. And then I'd have eight beers and ruin the night. And to you, that's a lie, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the longer I would do that, when I would come to you with these epiphanies or just, just want to tell you... I'm sad and um, I drank too much and I'm going to do better next time because it's making me so sad. Just, I mean, what did, how did that feel to you when I would kind of pester you with that stuff? Is pestering the right word? I think pester is an excellent word. Thank you. I don't think you really grabbed me by the shoulders too much. Because you weren't, I mean, unless you were excited about something. You know, I meant that kind of metaphorically. Yeah. Like I would, but you, like, listen to me. Don't yeah, ignore yeah, what I'm okay. saying. Um. So, yeah, so when you would say, yeah, we're going to leave at a decent time. You know, we're not going to be the last people there. I'm only going to have a couple, you know. Um, and then you wouldn't follow through. It definitely felt like a lie. And I thought, oh, you know, you're. it was just a selfish lie, a selfish. And then I felt, you know, suckered and let down and just and- kind of convinced that you were going to say anything to get me to go and then you were just going to do whatever you wanted. So you say so that's it very interesting. You thought that I set out like I'm going to tell her whatever I have to tell her to get her to agree to this and then but right. I really know what I'm going to do is going to be the opposite. Right. See that's not how it worked in my head. I really like if I told you I was going to try to just drink two or three I really planned to just drink two or three. And then I just couldn't help myself. So mm-hmm. that's very interesting. But over time, like, you know, we were together for almost 25 years before I quit drinking. You know, at some point you just stopped listening to whatever the the promise was that I was making, right? Or the, you know, if I told you I was hurting and I was sad and I was going to try to do better next time. Like, you just got it just, yeah. cold to that, didn't well, you? Well, and it just, it just, like you know, fell on deaf ears. Like I didn't even half the time. I didn't even think I really listened to some of the stuff you would be saying. Cause I thought, what's the point? Yeah. It's the same old, same old. See. And, and so this is why, this is why the alcoholics themselves need to listen to this, not just the loved ones of alcoholics, because I thought all along that all these epiphanies, all these things I was sharing with you, I thought they were profound and that you were just gobbling them up. I thought I was... I won't go so far to say like I was God's gift to you. No. I, but, but, you, you know... You tried to convince that of me once I or twice. I did but, think... But you thought I would be really, I, really just, you know, so impressed with your new strategy that I was going to like believe that it was going to be the saving grace so you could keep drinking and I would be happy. 
Well, I, you I, thought that I because was just that gullible? I, not gullible, because I thought about it all the time. I constantly was trying to figure out how to beat this alcoholism thing that when I would come up with new solutions, that I, well, what I thought were solutions, I thought because I spent so much time thinking about it that this was really an inspired epiphany that I'm sharing with you and that you would appreciate that. It, it wasn't. It, it had nothing to do with downgrading your intelligence. It and it wasn't even elevating my intelligence. It was more like I'm putting in the work. This is all I think about. I read about it. I listen to podcasts. I talk to people, and I want to know more about this. And so when I think I've figured out an angle that'll allow me to keep drinking, and I share it with you, I thought I was really, you know, I think profound is a good word, and. I didn't understand how much that was driving you away and, and creating, you know, lasting um, pain and resentment for you. I want to talk a little bit about resentment. It's a common topic that we discuss. I just want to drive home one piece of this again, because I'm hoping that the alcoholics themselves will get dragged into a room and forced to listen to this podcast by their loved one who is dealing with their alcoholism because I want them to hear from an alcoholic the resentments that we build up during alcoholism. It's not about the sorry. I thought for so long that all the things that I did that were stupid, that were inconsiderate, that were evil, all the the names I called you, all the stuff that I did when I was an active alcoholic, that what you needed was to hear me say I'm sorry. And so then even in even after a year in sobriety, I was still apologizing because I'm thinking, gosh, if I just, if I say the apology right, if I, if she, if she sees that this sober guy who's committed to sobriety is really sorry, then maybe it'll make everything fine. But it wasn't about the sorry. And that's what I'm learning. It wasn't about the sorry. It was about acknowledging. It was about you being able to lay out for me, this is exactly what happened on this specific night. And this is how it made me feel. And this is how I had to shield the kids from you. And this is this is the lasting impact that it had. And the next day, you couldn't remember most of it. And when I told you what happened, you apologized. But because you didn't, you know, you weren't, you basically weren't there. Mm-hmm. Memory-wise, your apology was useless. And I knew you were going to do it again, so your apology was useless. You didn't need just the apology. You needed me to acknowledge how bad it was, how much pain I had caused, and how lasting the impact was. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. This is funny to do this when, like, I haven't had caffeine, but it's like I've had caffeine. I'm like all amped, <laughs> you're like, and you're over there, like, dealing with a migraine, and your back hurts. And... Also, you're like, so, you know, this is how it felt. And I feel like you're feeding the feelings. Yeah, I, I feel like... When you were sober and in a place where your brain was in a better place because you'd had long-term, longer-term sobriety, it wasn't that I needed to humiliate you or bring you down by sharing instances that I carried around. I just needed you to help carry the burden. What do you mean carry the burden? Because I didn't want to be the only one with this terrible memory. I didn't want to be the only one or the kids and I be the only one that really knew what happened. And I think that that wasn't 
that was it. Like, it wasn't because I needed to make you feel guilty or bad or I just needed... It wasn't that I needed to vent. It's just that you... Like, a lot of times people will just be like, I'm sober now. Wipe their hands of the alcohol. Let's go move forward. And part of that is good, but the ones who've been hurt by the drunk and had to live through some pretty awful things and have this resentment, it's really hard if you don't get it off of your chest. And I think that they need to share the knowledge. Because that's what you needed from me. Yeah. I really like that, now that you've explained it, the carry the burden. Yeah, I mean, it's like... It's not like you can erase the bad stuff that happened. It happened. Right. You can't erase because most of the time... They're drunk. They have no idea. They're usually blackout drunk. You know? So they don't know. They don't know how intense it was. They don't see it from all sides. So, the apology doesn't make it go away. It's still there. And by bringing me in, in our case, to the full painful knowledge of what happened... Then I'm carrying some of the burden. We're sharing that. Yeah. I mean, because it has to be, and it has to be part of your recovery too. Yeah. Because you have to know, like, like, I don't think it's fair for someone to expect their partner to be like, oh, you're sober now. Yay. Let's just move forward. Because they don't, they're, they're not working through with themselves and they're just shielding and protecting their alcoholic too. Yeah. In ways. And I, I don't I don't think that's fair. It's not I don't think it's fair for you know, the recovery of the the non drinker to like have to just have all of this in their heart and have to figure out how to heal. I think it's really important for people to understand, for alcoholics specifically to understand how how much damage that we do in the act of alcoholism and and I don't mean that from a standpoint that they need to go around repenting and feeling remorseful I mean yes that's definitely part of it but when I was tracking you down so I could tell you the next new best thing that I had figured out for my sobriety or pardon me so that I could keep drinking and keep it under control. Or when I was, you know, tracking you down to tell you how bad I felt, but that I was going to try harder the next time. All of that. I was doing so much damage to our relationship. Because you're looking at me just like this woman who asked me this week, is it possible for an active alcoholic to tell the truth? You looked at this like lie after lie after lie. And I wasn't trying to lie. Just like when I would say, I'm only going to have two or three. It wasn't to manipulate you to get you to go with me so that I could then drink eight and go, ha, 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 I didn't do what I said I was going to do. It was nothing like that. I really meant everything I said. But the the kind of profound thing that I've learned recently is how much damage those deceitful statements have, even if they're said with the best of intentions. And I mean long-lasting, like... Like, we're still dealing with digging out of this hole of resentment and pain that 
that my deceitfulness caused. And I just think it's, I deal with a lot of people who in early recovery are like, you know, just like we were, uh, I quit drinking and it didn't fix anything weird. But, but then they'll be like, but my wife's still mad. Why is she mad? I don't understand. Well, this is why she's mad. She's got years of, of being lied to. And you as the drinker think, well, I didn't lie to her. I was trying. (coughs) Okay. Well, you're trying turned into a lie when what you tried to do never worked. Right. When you say I'm going to do A and you do B instead, it doesn't matter that you were trying to do A. Yeah, and it's just it's this constant disappointment. Yeah. That the family members. I mean, even like with our oldest child, like I made you one time go down and tell her that you were going to start drinking again. Yeah. And she'll never forget that. Yeah. It was crushing. It, it, I'm just going to be blunt. It turned you into a bitch over time. Now, when I started writing about my alcoholism and recovery, I was very careful to protect you because I didn't want to, I was protecting you to protect me though, to be honest. I didn't want to ever say anything bad about you because I didn't want to make it look like I was blaming my disease on you because I, I thought I would get all kinds of bad backlash if I blamed everything on you. I'm still not blaming anything on you. But I've stopped protecting you now because I think it's an important part of the story. The stuff that I put you through turned you into a cold, jaded, you know. Closed off defensive person. Closed off defensive person. And as it turns out, that was really, really important. It was really important to your protection of yourself from me and from the situation. But it was also really, really important to my eventual recovery. You know, it's funny. When, when I quit drinking unsuccessfully, the times when I would try and I'd go months without drinking and then I would eventually relapse and drink again. Several of those times, I said, I'm doing this for you, Sherry. I quit drinking for you, Sherry. What more do you want? I said that many times. Mm-hmm. And I believed it. I thought, listen, I, I have a wife and four kids and we've got all this stuff tied together the mortgage the business I don't want to lose her and as hard as it was for me to say I could I could you know in moments of clarity say okay she's more important than drinking is so I've got to quit drinking for her because I I can see that they're the two can't coexist so I've got to quit drinking for her it's reluctant I would rather have both I am not ready to quit drinking I don't I mean, even if I thought I was an alcoholic, I still was trying to manage it. Mm-hmm. And but I, I said I'll quit drinking. So so, oh, this is crazy, Sherry. I looked at it like I was this, you know, knight in shining armor, doing something for you. All my friends still drink. Every man I know is a big heavy drinker. But for you, Sherry, because you are warped and twisted with your desires for me not to be a drunken buffoon. I will quit drinking for you. I will be the savior for you. And so I thought I was quitting for you. And again, this is why I hope that the alcoholics that are that are wrecking their marriages are, are being dragged and forced to listen to this because 
you've probably had those similar thoughts. You know, fine, fine, fine. I'll quit drinking for my wife. If that's what it takes to save my marriage, I'm going to do it for my kids. My kids deserve to have a mother and a father, so I'll do it for them. But I don't want to, and I don't really think I need to, but I'll do it anyway. That's what I thought many times. And what I didn't understand was by the time I was doing that, I mean, this was 15 plus years into our relationship. I mean, you were already checked out. I'm not saying you were ready for divorce, but but the resentment was there. You, When I would say I'm doing something for you, you weren't, I remember specifically saying, Sherry, I quit drinking for you. What more do you want? And you gave me this look like I just, you, like I was dumb. Like I didn't get it. And, and it's because I didn't get it. I Here I am thinking I'm saving the marriage and doing this wonderful thing. And, and you know, you're like, but what about all the carnage? And I don't think, I mean, at the time, you didn't have the words. Right. You didn't understand any better than I did, necessarily. You knew you were in pain, but you you didn't know if you were unique in this pain. You didn't know if, if you were the only one that was going to hold on to these resentments. I mean, I would tell you all the time, you have such a good memory and it's a detriment. Why do you have this good memory? Why can't you let this stuff go? And you worried. You worried that your memory was... Yeah, I worried. Extraordinarily gonna, good, and it was yeah. causing problems, right? I thought it was definitely going to hinder my healing. I mean, yeah. So I thought, gosh, if I can remember every, almost every single detail of that night, how am I ever going to forgive? Yeah. Because if I can't forget it, yep. So here I am thinking I'm the savior, and I'm saving something, but I'm, saving, I'm trying to save something that's already gone. I mean, the trust and I'm not saying you can't work to get it back. You and I have worked to get it back and we're making great progress. But, you know, when you burn the bridge, you got to build another bridge from scratch. You can't use the old burned up bridge. It's a crappy analogy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I think I'm the hero and, but you're already gone. And... So now I say this as though I think I'm some kind of expert. And that's what I want to talk about next. I'm no expert. But you know what I am? I'm someone who listens. And I keep hearing the same message over and over and over. Now that we've come out about this and we're vocal and we're vocal together. And we share this story. And and I acknowledge the parts that are your parts that you owned for so long. I've not only apologized for him, but I acknowledge him and say, yes, your memory is correct. And now we're working with all these other people who have gone through the basically the exact same thing. I mean, the details might be different, but the the underlying all of it is the same. I, I have heard it over and over and over and over, both in our Echoes of Recovery group and just from listeners who email us or people on social media you know, when we, when we share parts of our story and they say, yes, that's, that's my story too. That's why I'm here to say to the alcoholics, you know, you think it's one way and it just isn't like, if there's anything we can do to help you, it's to help you get to where we eventually had to get to faster. I don't care how tough you think you are. I don't care how, how much you think that you can beat this thing. I don't care how good your intentions are. I don't care about the wonderful things you do elsewhere in your life. I don't care if you make all the money. 
and you deserve to unwind and, you know, she should be lucky to have you. Like, I don't care. You're digging this hole and your best bet is to stop digging now before you make it any deeper. So a lot of this consistent message that we hear is within our Echoes of Recovery group. If you are the loved one of an alcoholic, we want you to check it out and think about joining us because, you know, one of the main reasons we did this, Sherry, is because, you know, again, you have, you. we've talked about this before, you have alcoholism in your family. Your mother was married to an alcoholic, your sister as well. So it's not like, you know, you were totally new to this, but some of what you were going through, like the fact that you remembered everything, you, you kind of wondered if, if it really was just a you problem, if if you were uniquely poised to never be able to forget this stuff and have it cause problems, you know, deep into my sobriety. And so when we've started talking to other people, we've learned, oh no, this is this is as common as the sun rising in the east. Like this is how it happens with alcoholism. The resentment builds and builds and builds and and the the anger and the betrayal, it just, it doesn't go away with an apology. Mm-hmm. And so if you're there wondering, are you alone? And then you listen to our stories and you're like, oh, well, it happened to Matt and Sherry too. So at least there's two of us. I'm here to tell you there's millions of us that have gone through the same thing. And so if you, if you want that connection to be with people that have been through it and heal together, check out echoesofrecovery.com, E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com. I mentioned a minute ago that I'm not an expert. I think that's really important. At at points along this journey, as we've been learning more, and I've been pushing you, Sherry, to let's talk about it. Let's get on the podcast. Let me write about this. You know, you've stopped and said, listen, why don't you just go back to school and get a degree in psychology and become a clinical psychologist and <coughs> and deal with people with addiction problems and in, in, in that kind of treatment center setting. And I've always pushed back on that. Honestly, I, I have absolutely no interest in doing anything like that. I'm not trying to disparage that trait. I think, you know, any kind of mental health service is super important. I admire and respect people who do that for a living. We need more people doing that for a living. From what I understand, there's just a shortage of, you know, therapists and clinical psychologist. So I'm not trying to disparage it. It just, I have no interest in it whatsoever. And the reason is I don't want to just spend the rest of my life putting out fires. I want to be a part of preventing fires. I want to move the conversation upstream. Let's not wait until someone's had 25 years of misery like you and I experienced. Let's help people realize you don't have to go down that path to begin with. And so that's why we're so open about this. And and yes, the relationships we've made in Echoes of Recovery, I love, like legitimately love the people that are fully engaged and are sharing their stories and listening to us and letting us listen to them. So I love being in the trenches. I love putting out the fires as part of what we do. But the, the bigger part of our purpose is to help people understand so they can not get in this jam in the first place so preventative rather I mean how does that make you feel does it 
does it make sharing all this private stuff feel worthwhile when you think of, of that as the goal? Yeah. Or do you just still think I'm nuts because I (laughs) keep wanting to talk about her stuff out loud? (laughs) Both. We have to, we have to share with our listeners that when we sat down to have this conversation and it's every time we have a podcast, you're your one question before we start because I don't prep you for any of this your right. one question is are you going to make me talk about sex or not <laughs> thanks so you yeah, must be relieved so, to see that we're not going down so that yeah path. I do feel like it's both and I I mean I feel like a lot of people like learn and it resonates because it's someone's actual story in life rather than it just being you know a clinical way of looking at things And so I think, you know, preventing alcoholism and preventing the, the hurt and the pain that goes along with it to the spouses and the children and the parents of the alcoholic, I feel it's very important to prevent it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so our job is not to have researched all of the studies that have ever been done on you know, psychology and relationships and to tell people what to do. That's what that's reserved for the therapist and the clinical psychologists. Our, Our job, the way I look at it is to help people understand the impact of the decisions that they're making and the direction that they're going, help them understand that impact, maybe even help people understand the impact before they go down that path. I mean, I, I, I foresee us hopefully working with people at a younger and younger age. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It'd be nice. And I see that as part of it. And the other piece is I see that I see our, our purpose as helping people shorten the time it takes them to fix their issues if they do get in the same jam we're in. And that's where Echoes of Recovery in this podcast and my writing comes in. Let us tell us tell you our story when you're in the middle of yours. And you can read our ending, and you can read how long it took, and maybe yours won't have to take so long. And so that's why, again, I'm saying it again, fired up today, Sherry. I hope that our loved ones of alcoholics that listen to this podcast regularly, I hope they find a way to coerce their alcoholic, whether they're still drinking or they're in sobriety and they think everything's fine because they don't realize all the damage that's been done. I hope they find a way to 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 twist that alcoholic's arm into listening to this podcast. Um because that's the only way to shorten the time it takes to recover is if if you really grasp how bad a situation you've you've put your relationship in. Yeah. Carry that water. Carry that burden, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Carry carry your part of the burden. Well, and I think that the other platform you have for the alcoholics, I mean, I think Shout Sobriety has a has a place too because there are stories where you, as a drinker, can learn from their mistakes, um, you know, and, and the things that they're going through on the drinker side of it about relationships and damage done. And, you know, so it's a nice platform to have somebody there that's been through it from that side too you know it it is I think both 
shout sobriety and echoes of recovery. The point isn't for us to prescribe to people what to do. The, the point is for, you know, we're on this like mission of exploration and discovery and we're trying to learn. And when we learn, it's almost like doing research or, you know, a, a research trial project, you know, when, when the sample size gets big enough, and the results the same every time. Pretty soon we've got some definitive things we can talk about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't preach about this stuff for either side, for the alcoholic or the loved one, from a position of scientific. You know, I read books about it, and I, I you know, I talk about it from the standpoint of, oh, well, we're up to over a hundred people that have said the exact same thing. So, mm-hmm. at what point do we start to believe? you know, a hundred percent of a hundred people. Right. At what point does that just become how, how this thing works? And so that's why, you know, that's why we share, you know, I talked about how I don't want to be a clinical psychologist. I also, I also reject the word coach. I don't like the word coach. Now, you know, I've got a whole litany of words that I don't like in the recovery community, like, uh, falling off the wagon, yeah. Hate that. And teetotaler. Yeah. Did you ever look up teetotaler to find the no, I, specific I have origin? I things to do. I figured you would look it up. Oh. Well, I don't like to be called a teetotaler. I don't like falling off the wagon. I don't really like the word recovery. I have, you know, it's so hard when we like meet people or when we see people that we know that know we used to do have a bakery together. Mm-hmm. And they know the bakery's mm. gone, and they say, "Well, what are you doing now?" It's so yeah. hard to explain. Yeah. Oh, I'm writing, and we podcast, and we've got this nonprofit, and everyone's just looking for the money. Yeah, but where do you make money? Well, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's uh, funny. That but so sometimes when I when I try to describe it, people will be like, "Oh, so you're like a coach?" And until now, I've reluctantly been like, "Yeah, I, I guess so." But you know, you know why I reject the word coach in my head and I'm rejecting it out loud now? I'm not a coach. I'm not trying to like and I'm a soccer coach, so I know what a coach is. I do right. coach soccer. I'm not coaching. I'm not a life coach. I'm not a recovery coach. I'm not I don't have all the answers and I'm trying to share them with you and get you to learn the answers. Right. You're just um not a matchmaker, but you're putting people together. You're connecting people. On social platforms and Zoom calls to try to help them feel comfortable that they're not alone. So what would you call that? Well, it you know, it's kind of like on this mission of discovery. Like I think about, you know, when you're five years old and you're trying to figure out anatomy and you're like, I'll show you yours if you show me mine. What? I know. Because sh- that would be different. No, it's Like it's if you're not. a boy and I'm a girl. Yeah. I mean, that's why you do that. I'll show you yours and you show me mine when you're five years old. You've heard of that before, right? Yeah. I okay. suppose. Yeah. So uh, I, I am, I'll, I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you the bitter details of my story if you tell me yours. And I want to see if they're the same. And if they're not, then it blows a bunch of my theories out of the water. But since they consistently are the same, wow, my theories are getting stronger and stronger. So now I can write with more conviction. So... That's a lot to put on a business card yeah. or to describe to someone at a 
neighborhood party. So you're kind of like the, the male version of the Brene Brown without the oh education my God, and the doctorate. Like, yeah, she, don't like, say that. But she kind of like puts together these theories that she has about human behavior. Yeah, but she's a like, well, world-renowned genius. But she's yeah. fantastic. I'm not, not saying... I'm not trying to compare you. So on a... You know, but... Like, because that... That seems to me like she's like... All of a sudden, something pops into her head, and she's like, ooh, I want to study that. I want to know if other people are like that. And so you're just in a... In a place of, like, wanting to... To help other people know that they're not alone. So you're connecting those, because you've heard enough stories... And you didn't want to be the only one in a situation like we were in. Yeah. And Misery loves company. That's, I mean, that's a huge part of it, Sherry. The reason I talked out loud about this was because I researched it and I wasn't finding what I was looking for, especially on the relationship side. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know. I wanted to know how messed up I was. Or was it the alcohol? Yeah. Again, going back to what we said off the top, <clears throat> it turns out alcohol causes alcoholism. Not me being a deviant. I mean, what a relief it's been in recovery, in in long-term sobriety to realize I'm not suppressing desires to call you hideous names. Yeah. I don't have those desires. Those names don't ever pop into my head. Oh, my God. Like, I can't describe for you how, what a relief that was to realize I'm not a monster. It, it, it was the alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a relief. But so, yes... This is a mission of discovery to, to figure out what's going on. And I'll show you yours if you show me mine. And I think, honestly, one of the things that I'm, I'm learning and believing more and more solidly is it's the out loud, it's the talking about it, that's going to solve this whole problem. That's going to solve this epidemic of 15 million alcoholics in, in America, more than suffer from cancer, 3 million people around the world dying from alcohol every year. I really believe it's the out loud. And it's not, I mean, it sounds easy for a guy who's trying to sell books to say we should be out loud. Oh, I'm, I'm out loud, so buy my book. No, no. Like, I think it's much bigger. I think you've got to be out loud too. Not just you, Sherry. I'm looking mm-hmm. at the microphone. I'm talking to the <laughs> listeners now because I'm staring at the microphone. Yeah. You people need to be out loud too. And, you know, the funny thing about being out loud is people, people tell me all the time, oh, I don't want to... I don't want to share my story. You know, things are fixed. I'm sober now. My relationships are improving. It would be pointless for me to share my story. I don't need to do that. I'm here to tell you, you do. Because it's not about you. It's about preventing this from happening for the next generation. It's about making this a discussion that we have in the open instead of in hushed whispers or in church basements. It's about the people that haven't found the solution yet, knowing that the solution exists and knowing that they're not alone. Us telling our story out loud through writing and talking about it, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't just been because I'm an exhibitionist and I want people to know my problems. There isn't some like weird twistedness to it. I do think it's very weird that I'm so comfortable talking about our stuff. Yes. I think that's bizarre. I don't know why that is. But I don't seem to care, so whatever. But dragging people along to share as well 
um, it's huge for and talk about the dirty parts too. Talk about the gnarly, nasty parts because that's what doesn't get talked about. It's huge for other people that are going through the gnarly and nasty to know that they're they're not only not alone, but that it's really the only outcome that, that was possible once they're you know they tripped across the invisible line into alcoholism. There's a you know, there's a lot of people in the recovery world that are talking about their rock bottom moments. You know, I I drank, I, I experimented in high school, I drank heavy in college, I didn't lose the thirst as I became an adult and I was supposed to be maturing, and here's the train wreck that happened for me. Either, you know, I I lost my job or, you know, DUI or destroyed my family, lost my money, whatever. Lots of people are talking about that. And that's good. It's progress. But there's a ton of that in the recovery community, almost to the part, the point where it's kind of bland. And it's almost oversaid. Like I'll I'll go to listen to a podcast and be like, oh, we got, you know, Jamie's on today. Jamie, tell us your story. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't listen to Jamie's story. Because I know Jamie's story. So why would I want to listen to Jamie's story? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's it's also why I couldn't imagine honestly sitting in the rooms of AA. I'm not bashing AA if that's your thing, great. But I couldn't do that and just hear the same old, same old over and over again. Mm-hmm. What's missing in the recovery community is this relationship talk and not not the clinical side of it. You know, this is what codependency is. And let me define um, boundaries for you. And here's how you do detachment. I mean, that's all helpful. It's important. But I want to hear someone who's in the trenches. I want to hear about the, you know, husband that passed out in the middle of the living room floor in front of the kids and everything. And this was after he had said he was going to try to cut down or stop drinking. And he's just destroying the family. I want to hear from the side of the the loved one, the wife that's got to deal with it, what that's like. Because there's a lot of wives out there dealing with it. There's some husbands out there dealing with it too. But they need to know that they're not alone. So I got this idea, Sherry. I think we should start having guests on the podcast again. We used to interview yes. people. But yeah. then we stopped. Then we stopped. Do you know why we stopped? Well, part of it was we didn't have a whole lot of of pool. Like a pool of people. And then COVID Okay. So we couldn't really invite. So people weren't interested in being on the podcast. You're saying? No, I'm just saying we didn't. We don't like as much as you talk, and we have this. It's it's not anybody local. Okay. So that's what I meant. Like we were, you know, even though we're in a big city, we don't have a lot of. Before COVID, we weren't into doing this remotely. I think we've figured out how we could do it remotely. Right. We didn't have the technology. Yeah. Technology existed. We just weren't aware we, yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. We've got this this microphone that sits between <laughs> us, and that's it. Yeah. And that's on and loan from Jason, like... who started the podcast with me. Yeah, it actually looks like it's a microphone from the forties. I mean, it's really good and cool, but kind of shapes like the Andrew Sisters singing at the USO kind of microphone. The <laughs> Andrew <laughs> Sisters at the USO were not that old. I'm saying that's what the microphone looks like. Okay, I I got to look that up. I don't even. Is that going to be in black and white when I look that up? <laughs> okay. No. Great. 
But, you know, since our kids have been learning virtually, maybe we should just hop onto some of their Zoom calls and see some of their classmates. One of the kid has a dual screen and a protector in front of his, like, arm swing microphone. Yeah, we get some technology tips from the fifth graders. (laughs) Yeah. That would be great. But no, okay, technology was part of it. Um, Proximity to guests was part of it. But there's more. You know, and I don't I don't want to disparage anyone. God, I'm arrogant sometimes. I don't know how you put up with me. I do neither. Um <laughs> I don't wanna have people on to be like, Oh yeah, I was a drinker and then I drank more and then I I had a You don't car wanna listen to Jamie's story. I, You're done. I don't wanna hear Jamie. Yeah. So because I don't think that gets tra- there's a million podcasts doing that and I don't think that's the solution people are thirsty for. I want to have people on that are going to be honest and revealing and talk about their relationships. And I, I actually asked a semi, not famous isn't the word, a, a well-known quitlet author who, if you've tried to get sober, you've probably got her book in your Kindle or on your bookshelf because hers is one of the better known ones and saved my life. I mean, it was it's so well-written and one of my favorites and she actually responded when I contacted her not too long ago. I was shocked. And I asked her to be on the podcast and she said yes. And then I said, but I, I'm going to need you to talk in detail about your relationship. And I haven't heard from her since. So it's like it's like people are willing to to talk about their alcoholism because we've, we've kind of overcome that barrier. They'll talk about their own gnarly personal life, well, I think but it they goes are to, not willing to talk about the relationship. I think it goes stuff. to the embarrassment and privacy and I'm bringing somebody else in that I haven't been given permission to Understood. share their story. It's not just your story, it's the alcoholic story too. Understood. Or in that case, it's the alcoholic story, but it's also the loved ones yeah. that's had to deal with Well, yes. them. So, I think it runs both ways. And the protection it does. of their privacy and that's why i just don't think it exists much out there but that but i want us to bring it so here's what i'm going to propose sherry i think we should start having guests on the podcast we can do it remotely we can use zoom we can <laughs> just oh, pray that the connection Did you just get vomit in your good. mouth when yeah, you said it like that god more zoom yeah. but um you know i think as much as I'm against anonymity and I think that being out loud and proud about recovery is super, super important. I think we have to take baby steps here and I think we have to let our guests at least initially, um, be anonymous and tell their story because the story is what's important and the, um, the person's name is not necessarily. I hope we grow to the point where people are excited to come on and tell their story and, Boldly state their name. <coughs> but reminder, not their alcoholic story. Because you don't want to hear that. Well, no, I don't. I don't. I've heard too many of those. And and here on the Intoxicated Podcast... Unless they were more revealing in their alcoholic story and now, their alcoholic, you know, relationship. Well, that's and it. If, if, like if uh, they gave you more than just... If a lo- the rundown that they would give at a microphone at an AA meeting. If a loved one and their alcoholic want to come on together, <coughs> I am all for that. We would love to to hear that, you know, conversation and, and hear the similarities. Because they're there. 
it's just one story told by different people over and over. So I think that's something we'll explore more. But again, if you're one of those alcoholics that got dragged into this, this uh, listening to this podcast against your will, uh, you're not listening to someone with a degree in psychology. You're not listening to, to people who've done, you know, read a bunch of books and know the statistics. You're listening to people, though, that have heard the same story over and over again. And it's the alcohol that caused the alcoholism, but it's you that's causing the disaster of your marriage. It's not, it's not her fault because, um, you know, she can't understand that people need to drink to relax when they come home from work. It's not her fault because she's a bitch and, um, you know, she doesn't understand. And if she wasn't so hardcore and if she was easier to live with, then everything would be fine. You would be defying, um, what we've come to believe as true, just based on the many people that we've talked to. If, if that was the case, it's, it's not her, it's you, dude. That's kind of the message. Or the it's opposite. Not if them, it's them, it's you. Yeah. You have to get better with your pronouns. Well, look, there are increasing numbers of female alcoholics for sure, but the vast majority of who we talk to and what we deal with is still the man's the drinker, the woman is forced to deal with it. Vast, like vast majority. So, so yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening to us. Um, we, uh, you know, we're, we're excited for our discovery that it's the alcohol that causes the alcoholism. And we hope you're excited about that too. Check out our book, Sober Evolution, available for pre-order on Amazon. And for my wife, Sherry Salis, my name is Matt Salis, and we look forward to talking to you on the <laughs> next episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. Maybe I'll be a little less wound up and Sherry won't have a headache.